You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. China Mieville is the author of King Rat, Perdido Street Station, The Scar, Iron Council, The City and the City. His newest novel is Kraken. Thank you for joining me, China. Thank you for having me, Rich. China, you know, what interests me is that weird fiction is the fiction of transformation. You transform our world into a world where what's hidden is revealed, often in weird fiction, we will see transformation of humans into something else. What we don't often see is a weird fiction writer who manages to transform his prose style. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, on the assumption that, um, that you're talking about me, I, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a, as a compliment. Um, it's, it's funny, I mean... It I'm is a, funny. I, I was aware with the previous book, with The City and the City, that it read somewhat differently from the ones that had gone before it. But, um, I mean, my own feeling was that there'd been quite a noticeable shift anyway between, certainly between Pedido and Iron Council, um, and that the prose was shifting. And then, I suppose, with Kraken, um, or Kraken, I don't particularly mind how people want to pronounce it, um, um, in some ways it was kind of somewhere in between the kind of, most extreme sort of Rococo stuff I've done with some of the earlier books and something a bit more kind of restrained um, from, from the city in the city. But mostly I wanted to make this book feel in some way conversational so that it's not, not, not that that means kind of abjuring certain kind of um, uh, sort of linguistic game playing. I mean, that's part of the pleasure for me is, is playing around with that, with those sort of things, but that you had a sense that the book was, chatting to you, even if in a kind of, um, even if in a kind of relatively sort of um, prolix fashion, that the book itself, um, the, the, way it, the way it sort of talks, it, in a way, if anything, I suppose it's almost sort of a homage to something like Gravity's Rainbow, where I almost feel like, you know, you're kind of inside the book's head, um, and I kind of wanted to do that. And in terms of the overall project of the overall set of books, there is something that I just, I just like about trying to sort of slightly change the feeling book on book, try to kind of get a specific voice book on book. Um, and the one that I'm working on at the moment, I hope, feels distinct. Again, it's sort of somewhere in between, um, somewhere in between, I suppose, probably The City in the City and, and, and Kraken in terms of, in terms of prose style. Um, and obviously one hopes that there's always something that is kind of, is is sort of about yourself, so that you know it's still recognisably by the same person, even if it's very different. But but you're quite right. I do like trying to change the voice book on book. This book is really funny. I, I think you have such great insights into your characters, and I think you really create some new types of humour. There's a, a aside from just the the great verbiage and the banter and the the witty observations of the characters, is a bit reminiscent of kind of the best of Woody Allen, there's a scene fairly early on where a character who's been apprenticed to somebody does something that's so remarkable 
and so imaginative and so well explained that the reader can't help but um, laugh because it's just so funny that, that you think of something so weird, it's funny. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I, do, I did want this book to be a comedy. I mean, I think of Kraken as a comedy. I mean, I hope it is a, you know, it's a kind of somewhat dark, apocalyptic comedy, but it is a comedy nonetheless, and that's perfectly conscious and perfectly deliberate. So, um, you know, there are points where I'm teasing, I'm teasing the readership, or I'm teasing the scene, or I'm teasing things, and um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very glad if that kind of came through as, as funny. That, that makes me very happy. Talk about uh, this. This is if this is a comedy. One of, one of the things it, it, it uh, looks at in, in great detail, with a great sense of very generous sense of humor, is religion. Well, I'm not. <clears throat> I mean, I am personally an atheist. I am not a not a man of faith, um, but I am. I am very much not a. Um, I'm not. I'm not one of those people who's interested in sort of sneering at religion and I have I, I, I don't particularly like um, I don't particularly like the sense of uh, a, a kind of, sometimes a certain sneering that I see in some kind of um, anti-religious arguments or, 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 or you know the kind of dominant voices among um, among kind of atheist intellectuals at the moment um, is not some, it's not an approach that appeals to me I have tremendous interest in and you know, uh, uh, it's tremendous interest in religion and often and often respect for it. It kind of depends what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Beliefs per se um, are relatively irrelevant to me. What's interesting is how they make you act. So, you know, the question of, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I'm perfectly happy to stand alongside people of any faith, um, you know, on kind of shared concerns. And where we disagree, I'll have that, I'll have that debate, I'll have that argument. But I certainly don't like the kind of, freak show attitude to religion that that is sometimes held up a kind of sneering. Now, that doesn't mean not teasing it. I mean, I'm perfectly up for teasing religion, and I, <laughs> and I have a lot of, you know, a lot of fun. Although, partly in this book, the, 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 the references are, although I hope there is something about, you know, the real nature of religious faith, I mean, I hope, I hope that there are certain kind of, you know, sort of not too ridiculous sort of discussions about you know the actual nature of belief and so on. It's also a question of a, of a homage to a certain kind of tradition within science fiction and fantasy, which is you know the extraordinary cult, particularly the, you know the squid cult. Something mm-hmm. as ridiculous and recherche as a cult of squid worshippers is actually a fairly established um, trope within weird fiction. Um, you know from from merit through. Lovecraft and on, um, and so so a lot of these religions that are that, that are sort of chatted about in in Kraken are, you know, as much a kind of meditation on the kind of apocalyptic nature of um, of represented religion within fantasy as about real religions. But I don't want to suggest that there's no there's nothing about the actual nature of faith in there. I hope there is a little bit, um, and I hope it's amusing but respectful. Talk about creating uh, the characters and and. Getting back to London as a world of hidden worlds. Yeah, I mean, you know, one has, you know, you end up with a reputation, and you know, after you've been writing for, I mean, I've been doing this for sort of twelve years now, you know, and and you end up with a 
um, a reputation, some of which makes perfect sense to you, some of which, of course, is deliberate. And then there are aspects of which are beyond your control. And, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I'm aware that those people that like my books, you know, I'm often described as a, um, as, as a London writer. And I, I have no problem with that. I think, you know, my first book was very much to do with London and it featured a lot in a lot of my short stories and so on. Um, and I am interested in that tradition of London phantasmagoria. That said, I also think that those reputations become self-sustaining in a way that, um, you know, I think I, I think I could write five or six or seven books not set in London, and people would quite possibly still find ways to think of me as a London writer. Um, now, I, you know, I'm not complaining about this. This is absolutely fine. These these reputations are, to a certain extent, you know, autotelic, and that's okay. The thing with this particular book, yes, you're quite right, London features heavily, but from my, from my own perspective, it's much less a kind of grounded London, even a kind of fantasticated grounded London, than in King Rat or in some of the stories. Um, it, 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 you know, the landscape of this, although London is, is obsessively referred to, I think of it much more kind of, much more like a dream than like a kind of, Embed, you know, a, a kind of grounded city. Um, and part of the reason is that, you know, for this book, I did not start off this book thinking, I want to write a book in which London features heavily. Whereas for King Rat, I did. I was absolutely clear. What The reason I started writing this book was because I got really, really um, excited by the number of squid, the number of giant squid and colossal squid that were starting to appear in museums and so on around the world. And there is a beautifully preserved architeuthis in the research wing of the Natural History Museum in London. Um, and it's in a tank, and I love animals in tanks, and I love giant squid, so I, I love it squared. Um, and so the setting of London really followed the squid. It was the squid that came first, not the city. It is a very London book, but I think it's more of a Teuthic book than a London one. <laughs> Uh, I, I I love the the variety of, of of squid in this book. I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting. I think most of us, you know, grew up on, on sea monsters from mm. uh, Jules Verne to you know Richard Ellis Ellis's Monsters of the Sea. Um, so talk about the the kind of joy. Actually, right now, my one of my favorite shows is a show called River Monsters, which mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a a goofy guy who goes fishing for giant fish mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and there's always a kind of uh, i think a real appeal to to what's underneath the ocean yes i think you're absolutely right um i think you're absolutely right and i think there are two um overlapping fascinations here and one is with the you know the creatures from the creatures from underneath and the other is um with the cephalopod and i think that you know they you know the the, the latter is obviously um, inevitably, also the first, but they're two uh, distinct sets, um, which you know when you do get them overlapping like that, it creates an, an, an incredible excitement. I think that's you know the genius of Jaws, whatever else one thinks of the film, is to to play on that sense of you know the kind of the rising monster in a in an absolutely extraordinary way. And for myself, probably the the kind of <clears throat> the most um, the most telling uh, cultural example of this would be. Um, the picture of Jeremy Fisher in the uh, Enid, uh, Enid Blyton, listen to me, the Beatrix Potter book. Um, uh, Beatrix Potter, you know, the, I don't know if this is something that's particularly 
well known and celebrated by you and other you know people in um, in, in the states. But you know, among the Beatrix Potter books, my favourite was always Jeremy Fisher, the, the Frog. And there's a scene where he is eat, he has dangling his his leg over a lily pad, and there's a trout coming up underneath him. Um, about to bite him and he hasn't seen it but we the reader do see it and as a kid I was profoundly obsessed with that picture absolutely terrified of it as it got closer and closer I would get more and more nervous um, and I would be unable not to look at it but I would also be really scared to turn that page so I would be kind of slowly slowly turning the page and rushing past the picture and coming back and checking again and so on um, and I think you're absolutely right. That sense of, you know, the, the thing that rises up from underneath is, is very, very powerful and, um, and, and, you know, absolutely fabulous. Um, and then secondarily to that is the issue of, of, of the cephalopod. And there is, for whatever reason, a very, very strong cultural tradition, particularly among, um, you know, weird fiction, of love for and obsession with the tentacular monster, um, which is why... You know the the giant squid is such a powerful literary notion. Um, you know the giant octopus uh, and so on. The kind of and these figures are really really powerful. Now myself, I am in fact really more of an octopus man than a squid man. If I have to choose, the octopus is my creature. Um, but for the purpose of this book, you know the the fact that the squid exists, the fact that it is in the um, Darwin Centre, and the fact that it and many others have been kind of rising and the fact that there was you know the Kubadera and Mori the researchers who finally were able to capture a giant squid on camera um, a few years back these absolutely extraordinary photographs um, this all just kind of came together in this amazing way so I think you're right I think it's the kind of overlapping of of, of, of more than one tradition of subaquatic monster that uh, has just you know been very very exciting to me and to you know geeks for a very long time uh, I love the uh, the characters in this novel, and, and especially Billy. Talk about creating Billy and getting inside his head, because he's so much fun to be with. Well, I mean, Billy's a very classic character. I mean, it's a very simple book in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, Billy, you know, he's, he's the guy. He's the kitchen boy who realizes he has a destiny. Now, you know, I have said many times that I am... Uh, antipathetic towards and skeptical of that tradition, but it doesn't mean that it's a tradition that isn't sometimes very useful, that one can't necessarily do things with, and so on. Um, but what that means is, you know, this sense, you know, the sense of, uh, you know, the, the 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 you know the 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 guy who discovers that the world is bigger than he thinks it is, particularly in the kind of fantastic tradition. You think of things like, uh, you know, Neverwhere or whatever the guy who discovers that there's more, um, you know, in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in his philosophy, um, you know, who, who discovers that, you know, here be monsters. This is an old, an old idea. I'm well aware of that. Um, <clears throat> what I was hoping to do was, you know, with Billy, was create someone much like myself and many of my friends when I was a little bit younger who wouldn't be too much of a kind of cipher and would sort of slip into this role with a reasonable degree of gusto, um, but without sort of um, without being kind of unrealistically gung ho. So, the, you know, he is about it is about the kind of unfolding of his 
realization that the world that the, the boundaries of the world are not as he thought they were and in fact that his own place in that is rather dramatic although not necessarily in ways that are immediately evident um, um, and just kind of in, in a way just sort of trying to um, you know trying to treat that with a certain amount of realism uh, within the constraints of what is a kind of unabashedly sort of pulpy romp um, but also with humor again uh, a sense of some humor. So there is a point later on, which I think is hilarious, I and mean, whether or not anyone else does is is up to them, but where he starts whining because he wants to watch um, he wants to watch a fight between two different apocalypses, um, and he's not being allowed to, and he starts whining. And the hope is that this ridiculous notion, this guy acting almost like a six-year-old who's not being allowed to watch a favorite television program, about the overlapping of two different ends of the world, by the time this arrives, this absurd idea and this absurd sort of slightly bratty reaction of our protagonist is believable. Well, that's one of the things I think you do really well in this book. Um, uh, you're just a master of the art of, of hand-waving <laughs> in, in terms of... <laughs> the... <laughs> Some people might be, uh, might be insulted by that, Rick. No, it's... it's it, it, it... It's it's really necessary in this kind of fiction to to create um, believable uh, a, a believable supernatural realm, but mm. to do it economically without having to go into long explanations. And you do yeah. a great job of getting us into a situation. And I'm thinking of the the guy who folds things. Uh, it, it's just such a great concept. And you whip it through to us really quickly. You do this again and again. Uh, it, it seems like to me, as a writer, you were really just having a lot of fun writing this book. Uh, it was. It was. I mean, and, and and you know, the last couple of books I've written have been, uh, in some ways, you know, more kind of serious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's also been quite a kind of heavy few years for me in various ways. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I definitely did want to write something that was kind of perfectly cheerfully and unabashedly, you know, kind of uh, uh, enjoy it, like a romp, like I say, a comedy, something, you know, hopefully something that's still kind of, you know, serious enough to be interesting, but that is fun, you know, that's not a a dirty word. Um, In fact, it's funny what you say about, you know, being a master of handwriting, because although, you know, I kind of, you know, I pretend to be insulted, I'm not at all insulted, and in fact, I think it really, I, if, if I understand what you're getting at, I, um, I'm really pleased that you would say that, because in a way, this is, to the extent that I'm trying to sort of say anything about the fantastic in general, um, it, it, it's related very much to that, that, you know, part of my feeling is that, you know, the whole of the fantastic, the literature of the fantastic, and this includes basically a great deal of science fiction, so-called science fiction, is all about hand-waving, you know, mm-hmm. that the hand-waving, the point at which, you know, we, we may want to appear to be logical and rigorous, but in fact, there is always a kind of confidence trick in this literature, which is where you are performing a kind of analogic, magical thinking. Um, and sort of, as you say, waving your hand, saying abracadabra in some form or other, whether it's, you know, um, transduction coils or abracadabra, um, and in this particular book, I wanted to just basically sort of take that absolutely head on. So quite explicitly, all the way through the book, the way magic works is by a process of persuasion, essentially persuading the universe 
that these impossible things can happen on the basis of this preposterous logic that one thing is a bit like another thing. Um, that you essentially, you know, the, the, the kind of metaphoric logic that I think underpins the great bulk of magical uh, thinking and magical magic as a kind of, as a trope in, in, in fantasy literature, I tried to be quite explicit about. So if you can find a way of thinking about the conjunction of objects in a way that makes some kind of aesthetic sense, you can persuade the universe that this is how it should be. Um, there's a there's a there's a lovely and, and in a way this 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 lies behind the logic of a lot of literary interpretation as well. And there's a bit in again in Gravity's Rainbow to to quote it, to cite it again, where um, uh, Pynchon talks about cute correspondences um, and he spells it with K's. Um, but the idea that you know if you can find these um, or is it crazy correspondences? I think it's cute. Um, but if you can find these correspondences between things, you can kind of make uh, make a kind of logic assert itself. Um, and that um, I, I love that idea. I think it's I think it's absolutely delightful. So uh, that's what I was kind of you know sort of trying to sort of take that hand waving that you're talking about and raising it to the level of a kind of. Uh, uh, a kind of programmatic approach to thinking about the fantastic, at least for this particular book. It is cute correspondences, I'm sure. It is, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, obviously one of the, the um, aspects of this book is, that's pretty important is are the this concept of competing apocalypses. And, and this is, again, something you have a lot of fun with, and it's fun to, to read the real literature. Could you talk a little bit about your research into the, you know, the many versions of apocalypse that we've uh, uh, apparently lived through and, and what's, what's yet to come in your wonderful imagination here? Well, again, it's, um, you know, the, the idea of <clears throat> the two different traditions. There's the tradition of the apocalypse in in real religion, you know, um, and there's, you know, there's the, there's the Islamic apocalypse, there's the Christian apocalypse, or, or I should say apocalypse, apocalypses plural, or apocalypses plural, because of course there's much, there's many more than one of each of these, um, you know, there's apocalypses in all kinds of, um, you know, religious traditions. In fact, I'm, I'm not enough of a kind of student of religion to know whether there are very strong uh, religious traditions that do not include um, apocalypses, I, I couldn't tell you. But certainly, you know, apocalypses feature very, very strongly. And, you know, I talk about in the book about St. John the Divine, and, you know, these are always the most kind of dramatic and, or, or often the, the most kind of dramatic and the most kind of um, sort of dreamlike and delirious parts of any kind of holy text is the, the, the depictions of the end of the world. Um, and then that crosses over with, you know, like any good, you know, fantasy reader and viewer, you know, an enormous amount of my cultural consumption revolves around the end of the world. Um, and you think about, you know, um, something like Buffy. I mean, Buffy got to the point where it had to start mocking itself because every second or third episode, she was averting the end of the world. And you know, once it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a crying wolf issue, isn't it? You know, once you've <laughs> once the wolf, once the world has ended or nearly ended once, then you know that that's kind of dramatic. Once you're saving it for the third or fourth or twenty seventh time, it becomes less scary. Um, 
and that kind of inflation of the stakes, the the, the inflation of the universal um, theological stakes, is something that happens in in fantasy all the time. So again, rather than you know, like like if I were writing a book in which the revelation sort of a third of the way through or whatever was oh my goodness me, do you realize what the stakes are here? We're talking about the end of the world. A great number of fantasy readers would be like, well, sure, of course we are. It's a book, you know. I mean, what else would the stakes be? So rather than trying to kind of make, make a drama out of something, which I think it is probably more or less impossible to be dramatic about now, I kind of tried to sort of start with that and say, well, of course, you know, it's about the end of the world. But in fact, in this particular context, it's about lots of different ends of the world. And that, you know, what, what starts to go wrong is the fact that, you know, all these other ends of the world start disappearing and, you know, um, kind of coalescing into one sort of giant thing. So it's kind of like if you've got a kind of aesthetic landscape of generalized apocalypse, how do you still make apocalypse a worthy adversary in a novel, a worthy bad telos? How do you do that? And this notion, along with notions of, like, conflicting apocalypses and of, you know, um, uh, apocalypse sickness um, and all that kind of thing, this was just an attempt to kind of have that cake and eat it. Now, you mentioned another novel that you're working on at the moment. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. I'm not going to tell you very much about it, Rick, because you know me, I'm very superstitious about (laughs) books that are in progress. All I'll say is that, um, you know, I don't mean to be precious about it. I just, I think it it feels like like asking for trouble of the universe to talk too much about, (laughs) you know, you sort of have a sense that that God will say, oh, really, is that your plan? You know, um, um, so what I guess I would say is... um, in terms of the level of the prose, I think it is probably somewhere between. It is not as kind of rumbustious and I hope kind of amiably chaotic as Kraken is, but nor is it probably quite as kind of um, sort of noir-influencedly um, sort of restrained and 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 sort of um, uh, kind of uh, sort of gnomic almost as as the city and the city can be. It's probably somewhere in between, and. Um, I'm hoping the voice is kind of different, and I'm hoping that the setting is something that readers will think is something somewhat sort of n- new um, from me. So this is this this is my hope. It should be out within within the year. So wow, we're looking forward to it. I've been speaking with China Mieville. His new novel is Kraken. Thank you for joining me, China. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.